Welcome to the Writer's Block, episode two, Publisher Powwow, brought to you by Buffet, the premier all-you-can-eat Canadian restaurant in the lower 48. I am Rylan Grant, screenwriter, Ringo Award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant, Banjax, and The Jump. The other voice in the dark, the man in the box to the right, is... David Avalone, also screenwriter, film idiot, and uh, comic book writer of things like Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and Betty Page, and uh, co-creator with Kevin Eastman of Drawing Blood and the radically rearranged Ronin Ragdoll, say it three times fast. Nicely done. Uh, alliteration. Love it. Um, and Film Idiot is great. I might have to steal that. It's, it's, uh, I, always, I always encourage people to look me up on the IMDb because that uh, that will give them feelings of confusion and bewilderment and make them think that their life path is a straight, sensible line once they've seen mine. Yeah, nicely done. Um, I guess before we get started, I'm going to toot my own horn a little bit. Uh, so uh, listeners will be uh, watching this, listening to this a little bit late because of how these things are being released uh, uh, at the beginning. But uh, my comic book, Banjax, was nominated for four uh, Ringo Awards uh, this last week, found out. Uh, best series, which is a big one. Um, uh, best colorist, uh, best cover artist, uh, and best letterer. So, um, All so we are excited. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, comic pros can uh, can vote at uh, RingoAwards.com. Uh, we appreciate your uh, your uh, your support there. Um, but yeah, go out and read it. Uh, you know, I, I, it's a pretty damn good book. I mean, I've, I've been writing professionally for about fifteen years. I think it's the best thing I've ever written. So uh, uh, so check that out. Um, if you missed episode two last week, our creator empowerment era discussion with Scout Comics. Uh, co-publisher Charlie Stickney and Spencer and Lock creator David Pepos. I strongly suggest that you uh, back it on up and check that out. But today uh, we have a uh, an illustrious panel. Yes, indeed. Um, pe people we love, people we're excited about. Um, uh, why don't you, uh, why don't we bring them on out, JB? Absolutely. Barbara Dillon and Kevin B. Eastman. Hello. I like to say yes. to B. I don't know why. I just like it. So I made a little gaffe today. When you said Kevin Eastman, I assume you were talking about the uh, Clippers vice president of basketball operations. And so I did all this research on the Clippers. And so I'm, I'm ready to talk clips if anybody's it's good. Be, it's but, all um, going to be about basketball, no turtles whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. And, and so apparently there's this other Kevin Eastman and he created this thing that, you know, a lot of people like. And so uh, I'm in the dark I'm a little bit here, but, but, but yeah, yeah, but I'm gonna be okay. So, uh, so joking aside, guys, um, uh, our, our sort of go-to thing here, we let our guests uh, intro themselves. Uh, in my panel experience at cons, that's always the best way to go. You guys know you better than we know you. So uh, why don't we uh, uh, just go on around, intro yourselves. Barbara, we'll start out with you. Uh, tell us, uh, give us your bona fides, your bona fides, uh, uh, who you are, what you do, uh, and all that good noise. Absolutely. Thanks, Ryland. Um, so I'm Barbara Dillon. I am the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Fanbase Press, which is an award-winning comic book publishing company, as well as a geek culture website. This is our 10th anniversary this year, and uh, we, we say that we celebrate fandoms and create new ones. So we not only publish works, but we also uh, support and give voice to creators of all mediums through daily reviews, interviews, and podcasts. And uh, I would say that we're probably best known for our Eisner-nominated series, Quince, about a little girl who gets superpowers on her quinceanera. Thank you. Uh, but she only has them for the year she 
she's 15. So that's a little bit about me. That's a great book, by the way. Thank you. Huge, huge fan. Yeah. Thank you so much. And uh, Kevin B. Eastman, tell us a little bit about yourself and your brief career in comic books. Well, I, I sold the B from Michael B. Jordan. Um, no, the... Uh, <laughs> nice. No, I, I grew up as a, um, a child obsessed with comic books, especially Jack Kirby. Um, I still boast about the time I told my parents I want to be like Jack Kirby when I grew up, and they had that mortified look of, we're going to have one of those kids that never moves out of the basement. You know, back in those days, starting late late 60s, early 70s. Um, but I met another guy, um, Peter Laird, who had the same obsession with comics and uh, particularly Jack Kirby. And together we created the uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which was a play on um, uh, every favorite comic we ever read, whether it be Jack Kirby, Dave Sims, Cerebus, self-publishing movement was a big influence. Um, we borrowed um, money from my uncle. Some of, we were some of the early crowd funders. <laughs> <laughs> um, we self-published and thought there would never be a, a second issue. And um, 36 years later, uh, I've been uh, given the greatest opportunity and career in my life that uh, I still get to draw and create and um, mostly draw every day and write. And uh, these days, my favorite project is working with my buddy, David Avalani. Uh, project is very near and dear to us. Um, we co-created uh, a concept called Drawing Blood, which is set in the world of comic book, um, which is oddly autobiographical, but um, has a lot of other interesting bits in it. But um, I love the medium. I love talking about it. I I think probably like most of you guys, miss dearly and desperately not being out there with the fans this year, but um, I'm thrilled that everybody's uh, home safe and, and working hard, and we look forward to seeing you in 2021. <laughs> and and so I'm I, I'm just gonna go ahead and get the nerd out out of the way. Uh, it just seems like a good you know I I, I tried to play it cool and act like I didn't know who Kevin was at, at at the you know at the opening. But let me tell you a quick story. I'm not gonna make this long and I'm not gonna you know be a total tool about it. But I'm eight years old. Uh, my family is on vacation. I'm from Detroit originally, but we're in Nashville, Tennessee, and we are in a mall. And I turn to my right, and through the window of what I believe was a KB toy store. Uh, this guy was staring at me <laughs> and I had no idea who he was or why he was or anything like that, but I fell instantly in love. And, um, you know, my parents, uh, they, they weren't the type to, to buy me something when I w went into a toy store, but I threw a fit in the middle of this mall <laughs> and refused to leave. And so I walked out with these two guys, um, <laughs> And that began a, uh, uh, and, and, and this is great radio. Half of you are, are, are watching this on a video, but half of you are, are listening to this on iTunes and, uh, and Spotify. And you can't see that I'm holding up an original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Donatello and Raphael figure. Um, but that began a decades long uh, uh, you know, love affair with, with the turtles. Um, and and you, know, you, were, you were one of the you know, probably five people that made me want to uh, make comics. I mean, I, I found the comics you know, a little bit later because again, I was eight years old when I discovered these. But um, the really cool thing now, and I will wrap this up, is my three-year-old daughter has just fallen in love with the turtles, just like I did. Mm -hmm. um, she she is now, um, you know, she is binging the the 2014 uh, cartoon series, the the CGI one, and so um, it was probably three months ago or so. Uh, uh, I got her a bunch of these, and so now she is rolling with these turtles, um, you know, decades later. So uh, that is a uh, that's a pretty powerful. Pretty powerful generational thing, and and you know that that's that's got to feel pretty amazing. 
Well, it does. And, and let me first congratulate you again on the success of your, your own comic. And, and funny that, you know, um, just some of the things you said were some of the first things I said to Jack Kirby when I met him was like, you know, practically weeping, you know, it's like the reason I was drawing comic books was his fault. And, you know, <laughs> you know, Dave Stemple inspired us to self-publish, which I, I loved underground comic books um, as well, but it was a, uh, but what's been so fascinating and what we do miss out um, this year, I mentioned conventions and our fans was meeting um, people like you that were inspired the way I was inspired many, many years ago to pursue this crazy career that we all share and all have as uh, creating and, and, and drawing and, and living and thriving and uh, um, creating in this medium um, is the is the generational thing because, you know, again, you have to not to go on and on, but it's like the idea that we never thought the first issue would sell. Suddenly there's this cartoon and then, you know, here I am 35, six years later still drawing turtles and it's the greatest gift ever. But it's your fault, thank you, and it's your daughter. <laughs> thank you, because it's something uh, you never could have imagined. Uh, it's just the greatest, the greatest blessing, and that's what is so great about us all being here. I think we all share that same obsession with um, this medium, which makes it uh, even cooler. I I have to tell my favorite turtle encounter story. Okay. I was at I was at uh, I was at Costco, and I was wearing the hat Kevin is wearing right now. This hat, with the first, which has the first turtle sketch on it. You know, there's that guy at the door of Costco that looks at your receipt. And this guy was a big, tattooed, scary, imposing dude. And I walk up, and I hand him my receipt, and this is exactly his line reading. He looks at the receipt, looks at my hat. Turtles? And I said, yeah. And he said, that's where it's at, man. <laughs> I don't know what he I don't know where his mind was but I just thought that was the most beautiful like this big scary guy was like oh yeah hurdles that's that's the real deal man you know and I that was that was my favorite encounter with the turtles fan ever I always say that I feel about the turtles like you know when someone what it, it's like your your uh your your stepchildren from your husband's previous marriage, <laughs> you know, like I feel I I have nothing to do with them. I didn't raise them; they're adults now. But I still feel like a oh the kids the kids are doing well. The kids oh Seth Rogen's making a movie with the kids. Isn't that nice? That's just nice. But anyway, uh, let me get into today's topic, if I may, uh, and the reason that I wanted to have two people on board who were publishers. Um. You know, Kevin, you talked about what we're all missing this year. And honestly, that was the inspiration for us doing this podcast. We wanted to do BarCon without the drunks, without the gropey, creepy dudes, without the screaming to be heard over the music. Um, so, but 2020 has been a stress test across the board for all of us. Uh, it revealed so many weak points uh, where, like the man said, things fall apart and the center cannot hold. Uh, it's been a roller coaster for everyone, but in our industry, we've seen the conventions canceled, distributors stop distributing, publishers rocked by scandals, old alliances fall apart, projects crashing and burning, and yet we're all still out here doing our damnedest to keep working and keep the comics coming to the readers. So today, we wanted to talk about the evolution of our industry, how we got... To this moment and what might the future hold 
and how we can roll with the punches and still do this thing we love. And, uh, you know, you two are both publishers and you are honestly two of the kindest and most positive people I know in our dog eat freelancer industry. So, uh, the kindness was actually, you know, I, I will, I will freely admit, you know, the first idea was let's have Kevin on the show. And I was like, who do I pair with Kevin? And I was like, you know, I don't want to pair Kevin with someone who doesn't have his warmth and positivity. And, uh, you know, one of the great things that I will embarrass Barbara, Barbara is one of the greatest boosters of this industry that I know. She brings people together. She is on your side. She is behind you 100%. And, uh, you know, that's the experience I've had working with Kevin. And that's why I thought it would be nice to have a show. It's a sh we're doing a show today about the negative things we're all going through. So I wanted the most positive people I could find to talk about with it. Um, so uh, we talked a little bit about the the very origin of the turtles, but Barbara, what have what started you publishing comics, and what what's like been the arc been the last few years? Sure. Uh, so uh, like many of us, I don't think that there's a one set path when it comes to a comics career. I think everyone comes to it from such a, a varied history. Uh, I myself came from, I went to law school. I um, worked in the entertainment industry for a number of years because uh, I had an older brother who was an actor. And so I grew up in the theater uh, and I always wanted to help creative people to do what they love. And um, I got a bit jaded working in TV and film for so long. So I decided, you know, it's time to tell my own stories and to tell other people's stories. Um, and even when I didn't have the resources to tell everyone's stories, I still wanted to find a way to amplify others' voices. Uh, uh, it became very clear to me in learning more and more about comics that not everyone can work for a Marvel or DC, but that doesn't mean that those many, many talented creators aren't out there, don't have wonderful and diverse stories to tell that, that deserve to be heard. So I wanted to do my, my utmost to help those people find audiences. So um, we started about 10 years ago uh, making our own comics and our own stories. Uh, but while doing so, as I mentioned, we do, uh, we have a whole staff across the country now that does daily reviews, interviews, podcasts, editorials, uh, just all in an effort to raise voices for, for everyone's different stories. So um, we have learned so much along the way. Everything that we do is a, a learning experience, whether it's a failure or success. Um, but, um, yeah, I hope that answers the question. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a good it tease up a lot of stuff. Um, yeah. and you know, I want to, I want to interrupt because I think that's awesome first and foremost, but two, it's like, um, you know, beyond awesome, because what I think is interesting about, um, sort of where we evolved to is now is like everything you described, Barbara, is a lot of stuff that we were looking at back in the early days when Pete and I were starting was, we weren't good enough to work for Marvel at DC. Um, but I loved, you know, I discovered heavy metal and I discovered underground comics. And so you were just looking for your path um, to get into the business, to, to explore this creativity, which we all wanted to be part of. And how could we find our part? How could we find our way? And I know um, it relates to, again, everybody on this panel, but it was, um, you know, how do we get there from here and, um, and and that's one of the most asked questions when i'm at conventions now because i do meet a lot of artists that have um are still struggling that are they can draw they can write better than i can they can draw better than i can and they're still struggling to find their path in the industry or you've got somebody that comes up and show you a bunch of sketches and say well how do i get in 
from here. And we're so lucky that we have uh, not only so many different ways to communicate or expose our ideas and reach out to people and find those audiences, and especially with your your company, your website. It's an exciting time, it's still scary, and it's still like, you know, how can I make a living out of this? But it's uh, it's it's great and positive. Awesome. Thank you. Of course. Thank you. And, uh, you know, at the time that you started, Kevin, you know, you mentioned Dave Sim. He was publishing, self-publishing Cerberus. Hmm? Uh, I don't know how he was initially financed that. I know you you borrowed three grand from your uncle Quentin, who was the original crowdsource, a crowd of just one man. And, uh, you know, you put out the first issue. You didn't expect there to be a second issue. And then you had to regroup and do a second issue. And now, 36 years later, there are hundreds of issues of this thing. But uh, what made you decide when you migrated away from uh, Mirage, you started your own publishing company called Tundra. And, you know, if Mirage is, you know, one of the most successful independent publishing ventures of all time, Tundra is maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> You started this altruistic thing. Hey, and, hey, hey. I said you know, money. Don't don't take the wind out of the sail. Like, <laughs> no, what's uh, what's interesting is um, you know, Shell Dwarf and um, the the creation of the independent um, direct to commerce source distribution market, which started very small and suddenly grew into something you know very large. I mean, I think at the height of the self-publishing market, or even around the time that we were doing issue one and two of the Turtles, I think there were around 5,000 comic book stores. And so you would solicit and you'd get uh, orders um, based on that solicitation of what retailers wanted. It was non-returnable. So you'd know if you could even afford to, to print the book or not and make any money or not before you even went to press, you'd break your advertisement, which, you know, the, the film market, the AFM used to exist on that whole thing. <laughs> you know, you mm -hmm. movie flyer with a list of actors and, you know, you try to sell it to, you know, foreign companies and then you make the film. I, I uh, made a kickboxing movie for $15,000, called Kick of Death from a flyer that they took to AFM. They got three territories to pay $5,000 each and we made this ridiculously low budget uh, movie and I didn't even cast anyone on the flyer. By the way, like the flyer was a lie, uh, but that was that was the film market in the in the direct to video age of the '90s, and that was very much a wild west, similar to the '80s in comics. Well, that was to me like to me when I went first. I went to a million million year picnic down in uh, Boston, down in Harvard Square. It's like when I found um, which is uh, Flaming Carrot. Dave Simmons started in 76, but it was also uh, anything by um, Ripoff Press, Last Cast, Kitchen Sink. I found all these sure. amazing, Richard mm -hmm. and Vaughn Bodie, a lot of these guys were self-publishers. And it was, to me, it was like fantastic because it was, you know, there was the rebellious attitude with some of the content and things that they were doing, but it was also the freedom of tell whatever kind of story you wanted to without any you know, editorial situations whatever you could if you could find an audience and you had an opportunity to get out there and do it and that was really um, um the amazing part of uh mainstream versus underground and then when we started doing um following the footsteps of wendy and Rikini with without and, and service yeah. it was sort of like we called it middle ground so it was sort of like we found this way to 
tell stories that weren't, you know, adults only or, you know, comics code authority approved. And that was sort of the, the foothold that we had, even through the, you know, and that existed through the black and white boom and bust. And then, um, you know, many years beyond that, but um, um, the success always came from the fans, first and foremost, the people that were buying it and wanted to see the, the, the next issue, the next issue. But the evolution of that sort of segued into the evolution of Thunder, where uh, around the time that Peter and I were doing a lot more comic conventions and things like that, we were meeting different artists that, um, you know, as the as story would go, they'd go, you know, I'm drawing Spider-Man or I'm drawing a mainstream comic book and I love it. I have a large fan following, but this is not what I want to do. I have my own original ideas for doing work for hire and create my own stuff. And so um, even prior to, um, you know, companies like Image and such huge hits, I wanted to do a company, company called Thunder, which was still independent creator inspired and, uh, support kind of like the apple records of comics if you will um and i promised everybody it would not have the same ending which it did um but it was <laughs> to reach out to those artists that had a vision of something um that would allow them to quote unquote quit their day job and do something that they would still own as a creator the company tundra had no ownership of any of these things so you know from hell and the pro and so many other things that we did was um to try to give them that opportunity I don't regret a single moment of it. Uh, it's just one of those things. It was a great experiment, and, and I wish it hadn't hadn't have failed. Just because I think we could still be doing some cool and interesting stuff, create our own. But that's the you know I don't want to jump all the way to the present because that's the greatest gift of the business we live in now is because um, Kickstarter and things like that, Indiegogo and stuff, um, as David and I funded and uh, created and and funded a, uh, created our own project and funded um, drawing quite through funding and we have you know we were going over you know where we talk we talk every day but we're going over issues today is where the publishers or the secretaries or the artists will go where every part of this component is to, to, to it's our book that's the greatest yeah. no and and tundra tundra produced some great books yeah, very you know, some popular some ip that is still out there aren't they making another crow movie now or is that I feel like I've heard something about that, but, uh, you know. Yeah, I was thinking about going through the list here. We have uh, uh, Alan Moore's Big Numbers, From Hell, Lost Girls, uh, the Taboo Anthology, uh, The Crow, of course, Mad Men, uh, Dave McKeon's Cages. Oh, I mean, that, that's a, that is like a Hall of Fame roster right there. That's incredible. No, it was great. Again, it was a really great experience. And it was it was tough because I think the comic market at the time, not to go on, but it's still, you know, the comic market is always the most interesting thing we have to do with our distribution network into the comic book marketplace um, with material that is mainly pop culture on the one hand, but you have these opportunities. And now that, you know, bookstores support more uh, independent publishing, that kind of stuff, that um, a lot of stuff that we were publishing were. Um, you know, I mean, I remember having a conversation with Dave McKean on uh, his project called Cages, um, and his complaint was, uh, you know, I, I sold a couple hundred thousand copies of Arkham Asylum, this painted Arkham Asylum book, and I don't know why my book Cages isn't doing as well as that. And I said, well, Arkham Asylum was, you know, every 
the most popular characters in the entire Batman universe. <laughs> and you're awesome. And I love this book. Cages was about a cat that was sort of wandered through different apartment houses, listening to different people having discussions on philosophy of life and the universe and things like that. So the content was slightly different. Um, I love Cages, but it just was, we just couldn't find an audience for so much of the stuff yeah. that we, as much as I had. No, it's what we've said about drawing blood is it's a, you know, it's an inside baseball midlife crisis of the artist story. And we're marketing it for people who like funny animals fighting crime. Um, it's a, that's a, that's a, that's a barrier. And there are still people who think that that's all comics is, is funny animals fighting crime guys in capes and treating it as a genre. I mean, you still get in the 21st century, people writing that same news article from the 80s that's you know biff pal comics aren't for kids anymore and it's like comics haven't been for kids for a good half century now <laughs> like you know you guys all remember the uh, when, when they rolling stone did that rolling stone did that amazing thing on the dark night return i think harlan ellison wrote that did he really because it was it yeah, started with, i think you know, that was an article by harlan ellison where he talked about how dark knight returns was going to change comic books forever he might have also been talking about watchmen but i mostly remember him talking about dark knight returns and it was a huge article and it literally had the title biff pal comics aren't for kids anymore and you're like oh wow oh harlan you're a science fiction don't writer. do that yeah and again as a science fiction writer he should know better than to present a genre as in intrinsically silly like yeah. don't you realize your genre was treated that way for like literally a hundred years and people didn't take you seriously because people wrote articles like this yeah. but you know it's uh i'm curious barbara how did you how did you start how did you capitalize for one of a less uh you know boring word uh how did you how did you dive in well, ah. it, it, yeah, and and, and 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 let me just frame this a little bit, Barbara. Sorry to interrupt, but 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 what I think was what was interesting about what Kevin said was that he had this grand idea with Tundra, um, and to a certain degree, it was like decades ahead of its time. Totally. Um, I mean, you know, the conversation. I mean, we'll talk about where we're headed in a little bit, but I think we've kind of arrived at where we're at now. Um, uh, Kevin's vision. Uh, is is now to a certain degree a reality, and and maybe for the first time uh, a, a distinct possibility, right? Um, there there are so many publishers like you, like 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 your company, um, who are are able to kind of give these creators that that don't generally have a voice uh, an opportunity, or um, or or like Kevin was was going with a, a creator that feels like he or she has to do a certain thing. They can come and do this smaller prestige book that is really a passion project, right? Um, we are kind of in the the Sundance era of of, of comics, for lack of a better comparison. Yeah. So I just want to frame I, I want to frame it in terms of that because I think that you are um, you are most certainly kind of one of the people on the the front lines of this movement. Um, uh, you know, you're you're doing now what Kevin was was you know attempting to do with Tundra. So. Uh, Let's frame it that way and, and, and go Absolutely. ahead and let it rip. Yeah, that's a good point, Ryland. I, I agree. And I'd love to I'd love to first speak to how we got started and then really to just echo what Kevin was talking about and, and discuss 
kind of in, in looking at where we are now in terms of the comics industry and seeing that as a, a microcosm of of not only uh, American society, but just uh, capitalism as a whole, I find uh, fascinating and have discussed with, with other creators. So, um, but I guess first, just to start with how we got started, um, working in TV and film for so long, I saw the underbelly of how much it was, and, and from someone who was like, bright lights, big city, I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania originally. So I was so excited to be in LA and to meet all of these wonderful actors and directors and producers and whatnot. Um, but I very quickly learned that it was very much less about the art and the creativity of it and the passion for creating stories and much more simply about the business. And I think that that was really eye-opening and what truly jaded me about the industry, and especially in seeing so many creative people having so much talent, but it not being utilized because they didn't have access to the same, uh, the same opportunities that others did. Um, so for us, we, we had some of our own stories that we wanted to share. So we brought those to life through comics. Um, I likewise was a big Ninja Turtles fan growing up. Um, and I was a, a huge fan of the X-Men animated series from the nineties. Um, just that was so, I was so impressionable from that series. I feel like that got me back into comics. Um, but uh, I, I think that we saw sequential art as such a, a wonderful medium in that the sky was the limit in terms of the storytelling that you could utilize um, and also the the collaborative aspects of it and that it wasn't just a writer it was it was a visual art that you could bring to life with multiple individuals telling that story both literarily and visually um, so it was such an exciting thing to be able to bring those stories to life and then uh, as we started with our first two books that were kind of in-house created uh, and then having folks bring stories to us uh, was such a gift in being able to provide that exciting opportunity that I think everyone here has experienced of I finally get to see in print and hold in my hand what has been in my mind for so long and it's such an exciting thing to be able to bring that to other readers and bring that to other people. Um, so that's really how we got started. It, we actually haven't done an in-house book since it's all been submissions um, to this point, which we are extraordinarily grateful for. Uh, we'd love to do more um, in-house stories that we ourselves have created, but um, I certainly won't look at the, a gift horse in the mouth uh, at this time. But in going back to Kevin's point, um, I, I think what is so amazing right now is that there are so many varied opportunities for creators to bring their stories to life right now, not only through uh, self-publishing has has taken on such a, a broad scope of, of terms of what that means in terms of you could publish it uh, in print, you could publish it digitally only. And when you're talking about digitally only, that can mean a wide array of things, whether it be through Comixology, whether it be through Webtoons, you know, whatever, the, your own website, uh, whatever that might mean. And then bringing in um, things like crowdfunding and how many opportunities that has created uh, to kind of uh, jump over the direct market. I think what's so fascinating is that, in uh, going back to my second point, uh, it's, it's fascinating to look at comics as sort of a microcosm for capitalism, at least here in the U.S. and its application, because there are so many talented uh, self-published creators or simply creators even working with bigger publishers, which might mean anything from an Action Lab to an IDW, 
who are really just trying to pound the pavement and, and get the word out about their book, but there are so many barriers still in place uh, at every path, uh, not just in trying to tell your story, but uh, in terms of distribution, um, in terms of there still not being a lot of money in comics, you know, as, as much as we'd love to all be, uh, have that wonderful, and some of us do obviously have that opportunity to um, work full time at their craft. Uh, I myself actually maintain a full time job in addition to my work at Fanbase Press, but uh, I love that that affords me the opportunity to do what I love and find creative fulfillment in comics, as well as being able to provide that opportunity for other people. Um, so I think it's so fascinating that we live at a time where comics are so amazingly diverse in terms of opportunities, but it's so, I can see that it's still so frustrating, just like capitalism is where, you know, you, there are so many opportunities, yet there are still barriers that are left that will always prevent you from reaching that other milestone or that other tier. Um, even when we add book distribution to it, uh, even when we add libraries and schools as new audiences and opportunities for sales, um, it's always going to be those, those bigger folks at the top who have the opportunities, who kind of maintain how things work that will prevent uh, other people and, and prevent self-published creators from being able to, to rise up to the top. So hopefully that makes sense and that I'm not rambling <laughs> entirely. That totally, that totally makes sense. I, I would say that, you know, for all of the difficulties we're going through with right now, it's hard for me to look at the world of comics that are currently being published, what's coming out of it. They're painful as it may be, I don't know that there's been a better time uh, yeah, I, I, I would, I would, right. I would posit that. Yeah, I would posit that that old, uh, you know, that old model is really breaking down. I mean, we've seen it, we've seen it happen in television, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, there are so many options now with streaming services and you know, Quibi and internet stuff, and you know, uh, I mean, it used to be that, um, you know, it used to be that uh, a late night show would get thirty million viewers, right? um an absurd number like super bowl numbers um and if you didn't do that then you know you were canceled right you were replaced um you know now they get i don't know a, like the best ones get a third as many a fifth as many something like that i that, mean yeah. uh, uh the, the yeah the idea of a hit is is just changing i think that the same thing is happening in the comics community right um in the publishing world is things are fracturing there there are so many ways to get your books and to get your books into hands and stuff like that um, that, um, yeah, it's like the, you know, the DCs, the Marvels, they're, uh, they're, they're real estate shrinking. Right. Yeah. And will continue to shrink. But it, it, you know, it's sort of the thing I was addressing at the beginning that television movies and comics are all going through a similar, we, the digital adjustment hasn't fully been made yet. The, the adjustment to the new online world is still, you know, I think about the fact that I guarantee you a commercial that you buy in prime time on ABC costs millions of dollars more, hundreds of thousands of dollars more than a commercial on Hulu. But the thing is I can skip through a commercial on ABC. On Hulu, I actually watch a damn thing because I can't skip through it. <laughs> and we have the revaluing hasn't happened yet. People haven't realized that the digital world is actually more valuable than the you know, I'd always crack. I always love to refer to incredibly expensive Netflix, Hulu, 
Amazon shows as web series because they are they're web series. You know, House of Cards is a web series. It it only plays on the internet. It's not a TV show. Uh, CBS launched its its new uh, its online thing with Star Trek Discovery. Star Trek Discovery is now going to be on CBS in the fall, probably because there have been six months of people not making TV shows and they're now desperate for TV shows. So they're rating their own, but it is absolutely a wild West moment. And I think one of the things that when I first moved to LA wanting to be a filmmaker, uh, I probably should have thought about this before I got out here, but I remember one of the first weekends I was in LA, I opened the paper to look for a movie to go see and there was nothing I wanted to go see. And thinking about the films I wanted to make, I went, that means no one's going to want to make the movies you want to make. If this is what studios are releasing, this is what studios are making. You don't want to write these movies. You don't want to direct these movies. Ergo, no one is going to be that excited to make the movies you want to make. Um, and that's what one of the things that pushed me into independent film. Um, and like people working for the big, even that became a little too much of a grind for me at a certain point. But in comics, the ability, it's never been easier to do your own thing, to get it in front of people, you know, and and there is to a small degree that little glimmer of what we all want out of the world, which is an actual meritocracy. That an artist with, I found an artist recently who's working on a project for me and Kevin actually, a spinoff from Drawing Blood. I found her because of Twitter and the GTA and the uh, Visible Woman hashtag. I, it's a it's a project with a female superhero, for want of a better, quick and easy description. I was like, I'm gonna find a woman to draw this for us, and I saw the hashtag of Visible Woman, and I clicked on it, and I scrolled through. By sheer coincidence, the artist that I like turns out to know Ben Bishop, who we all we also worked with. So I was able to get a personal recommendation as well. But I found her on Twitter. And she I chose her because her art was the best. That was it. That was it. I saw a couple of things on on a social media platform and went, that is a that is fantastic art. We are going to hire this person and give them money and they are going to draw a comic book for us. And yeah. that's there's no 1970s version of that or 1980s version of that or even 1990s version of that. One thing I'd like to bring up is, is you bring up an interesting point, and it actually relates directly to comics as a business. It's like, and I feel like, um, you know, we love Hollywood and all that Hollywood's done um, for all the right reasons and so many of the wrong reasons. But I feel like the thing that like every Hollywood blockbuster that we've sat through and hated more than life itself, um, which perpetuates the market and the profitability of the market and these tenfold features. Um, it creates an environment that we can then, um, that independent films can survive, um, that you can have, you know, whether it be the AFM or Sundance Film Festival or film festivals in general, or people willing to finance out of their own pocket. Um, and how many hits can we all name collectively um, that have been funded, um, uh, filmmakers funding it with their own credit cards or doing their own things. And, and that perpetuates the quality of films as they go on to do other uh, these artists want to do other films, uh, acting and, and directing and otherwise. And the thing that I worry about the most right now about comics is um, is just, you know, not only just the, the pandemic or um, so many issues with the comics 
shops themselves, but it's a direct distribution market is so many of these shops depend on big um, corporate properties and concepts that work to help support a system that then we can get independent comic books into those systems. Like, you know, when I, you know, David and I were, were friends of many comic book um, comic store owners, in particular, Ryan um, uh, Leibowitz from the Golden Apple in LA. And, you know, Ryan does such a fantastic job of having, you know, everything that he needs to do to service that monthly comic um, fan base that supports the big projects. But he has huge independent comic um, <clears throat> printers and publishers, and he can order a few of those because it's still a non-returnable market. So the chance that he's taking on buying three copies of anything is a chance that he might get stuck with three copies of anything in hopes that somebody will come in and discover it and it would perpetuate the, the success of, of that property. So I feel like one of the things I worry about the most is, um, you know, again, you know, if we're talking about um, all the ways that we get to market a project these days, we are so, so lucky that we have all of our social media, whether it be websites or, um, you know, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, and all those things that we can reach out to a wider global audience, that we can build that audience that then services a market that, again, a lot of that collector market is, um, they want the physical copies as well. There's, you know, um, we have digital versions of um, drying blood available, and I think I bought a bottle of wine with the profits we made on our, um, <laughs> our digital sales um but the yeah. book sales itself the artists we've reached have been be able to perpetuate to, to support the next uh, yeah. issues and so i feel like um david would do the same thing i would do and we'd all do that i think when we go to comic convention is to walk around those far areas of the convention those tables set up over by the restrooms or the people stuck in this far corner in there and you find these incredibly talented people using all of those mediums in hopes that they can get a distribution deal maybe into mainstream but they're using all the social everything they have borrowing money from fans and family and setting up a booth to make their comic books um, known and, and work and, and find an audience and so that's that's it's a challenge and it's a real tough time um, so and I, I think it's it's part of your evolution i think as a comic book fan and as a con goer i mean i remember going to cons i've been going to cons since i was probably 12 years old and I never spent any time in Artist Alley when I was a teenager. Wasn't interested. Those people, those people don't have Star Wars comics. Why would I look at that? They're not, they're not drawing Superman or whatever. And then you reach a certain age where it's like, now I'm only in Artist Alley. Like I have almost no interest in the rest of the floor. The people I want to talk to, my friends, the world that I feel a part of is the world of people who have done their own stuff. And even in Artist Alley, a lot of times I'll go to a booth and someone has beautiful renderings of Harley Quinn and Princess Leia and Supergirl. And I'm like, what do you draw? What show me, show me the thing under the desk, under the table that you do for yourself. That's a very nice Princess Leia, but I'm not Lucasfilm and I can't hire you for that. But show me the thing you love and I will buy the hell out of that. And, uh, you know, and I think the, the way in which comic books dominate pop culture almost to the degree that people don't realize how much comic books have dominated pop. I bet nine out of 10 people who watch Stumptown have no idea it's a Greg Ruka graphic novel and not mm -hmm. a detective show developed by ABC internally. You know, 
I, I, a number of people who told me how much they loved, uh, speaking of Greg Ruka, how much they loved uh, The Old Guard. I was like, you know, it's a, it's a comic book, right? And they were like, no, it's not. It's a Netflix original movie. I was like, no, it's, I read it a year ago. It's definitely a comic book. They made a comic out of that? Yeah, right. That's exactly. Yeah. That's how some people look at it. No, I, I mentioned one of my favorites is, uh, you know, Road to Perdition, you know, things like that. But, it's a, but no, I think that it's um, it's a funny thing that, you know, even, you know, uh, going back to um, the development and creation of um, uh, Drawing Blood, it was something that we originally when we, as the idea evolved, we said, well, this would be great as a TV show. Let's try to sell as a TV show. And so we, we sort of dipped our toe in the water of like, well, you know, I got a bit of a name and, you know, David, and we see if we can, this is such a great idea, let's see if we can sell as a TV show. And it just, there was no chance it would ever happen that way. So we mutually agreed almost immediately, like, let's go to the reason, you know, we get to pay a rent every month, um, seriously, is uh, let's, let's come up with it, do it as a comic book. Because I think once you can show something as a comic book and a visual, people go like, oh, that's what it is. Um, but, uh, no, it's a, it's a, you know, it's it's funny. It's like uh, I'm lucky. Um, I'm working on turtle stuff there and turtle stuff there, and we're working on drawing blood, and we're finishing the next march of that. But I'm so grateful to have a job um, to do the things that uh, is a medium that I love so much. But I do, I do worry about our future as a medium because it's it's we're going to come out of this pandemic. Um, you know, my wife Courtney works all over conventions and stuff, but we. You know, we canceled 20 shows this year. Um, will there be an opportunity to do those shows next year? To uh, if we do those shows, are fans going to want to come out to do the shows? What about the people that uh, would draw those Harley Quinn or um, Batman prints and posters to sell those so they could afford the, the table so that they could show you that thing from under the desk? And exactly. Go, you know, I have this, but this is what I really do. Um, so, uh, you know, as, as worried as I am, I'm always hopeful and I'm, I'm super, always super. Well, I, I think the, the independent people are actually doing more to bring new fans in, ironically, than the big two. The big two are sort of obsessively marketing to an aging fan base that likes a very limited, narrow version of a thing. Um, and I think it's criminal malpractice, honestly, the way the, the way the big two have not I feel like the Marvel, the MCU movies, they had an enormous opportunity there to make people go out and buy Infinity, you know, buy Jim Starlin's Infinity War trade paperbacks, buy uh, old Stan and Jack Iron Man and comics and all that. And they they blew it. They absolutely 100 percent blew it. They could start tomorrow if they wanted to. But they I think that Hollywood sees comic books as their R&D department. You know, and I was like. I was like to say the thing about Kevin and I turning drawing blood from a TV thing into a comic book thing, because I get asked by a lot of screenwriters, should I do that? Should I sell my screen? And I'm always like, if you want to throw away six months of your life on a pamphlet, on a brochure for a non-existent TV series, you just go right ahead and do that. But uh, we're comic book guys and we love comic books and we love our comic book. And I think it gives us enormous power in meetings, honestly, to be able to, when people have bad ideas about how they want to develop drawing blood, we're like, we still have our comic book that we love, and we will go back to it if well, you don't want to do it. If you don't want to do it our way, 
Well, you know. I think what's what's really interesting, and, and Ryland and Kevin, I think this was both to your points, but I, I think I do agree with Ryland that I think that these mechanisms, these systems are breaking down, um, sadly, in, in light of what's happening with the impact of COVID, but uh, hopefully for the better in the long run. Um, but I think, and, and Kevin, I can't remember if, or if David, if it was your point, but I think we do actually want to look towards independent creators at this time because they are the individuals, and, and Kevin, to your point earlier about uh, as, a, as an independent creator, you are a one-stop shop in terms of uh, creating the property itself, marketing, selling. Um, you are absolutely every aspect of this property, uh, which a lot of folks don't see and, and even creators may not know about when they're getting started about how much is involved nowadays that you have to be a brand or you have to be a social media guru, you have to be a business and sales expert, you have to be everything while just creating the project itself. Um, but I think what's so fascinating is that in addition to having all of the wonderful opportunities in terms of digital and print distribution right now for independent creators, those individuals in having to really pound the pavement and get out there and do all of these things and uh, bump up against all of the barriers are learning how to change, are learning how to adapt at a much faster rate than those um, bigger companies that are, you know, once, once Diamond broke down earlier this year, you know, we're kind of at a loss of, well, what do we do from here? Where do we go? Uh, whereas I saw a number of independent creators just, you know, they didn't miss a beat. They started something new. They tried it. If it didn't work, they, they adapted. They tried something else. Uh, and I still see that happening. So I really do think that um, the power of this industry and where it's going to go, and it, it may take some time, of course, um, but I think that those barriers will, will start coming down, but it's really independent creators that are, are going to do the the heavy lifting or, or at least guide us towards uh, the path forward. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's 100% spot on. And even, you know, it's funny, it was like what David mentioned, and you know, we have, we have a 14 year old son and he's watched every single Marvel Universe movie. He knows every bit and pieces. And even you know, we were at one of his soccer games a couple of years ago and he, he pointed out that one of the soccer coaches looked like Stan Lee. He goes, oh, Stan Lee's coaching our soccer game. Um, I mentioned Thanos, I mentioned this and this, and that. even, you know, Black Panther, I've got the first appearance of Black Panther, all that, you know, we talk about these different things and, and I go, well, I've got the comic of it and I've got the comic of it and I've got the comic of it. And he'd be like, well, uh, I like the movies just fine. I don't want to go there. Um, they made a comic out of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's tricky. <laughs> but I, I will say though, I think, and I, you know, I've had this experience personally. I know some people have had this experience when I was trying to get independent films made and trying to break into the, you know, the big leagues, I couldn't get arrested. And ironically being a comic book writer got me hired on the development team of a big blockbuster movie last year because I was a comic book writer. My 30 years of film experience meant nothing to them, but they're like, Oh, you write comic books. That's you. You must have your finger on the pulse of this kind of thing. Let's we need you in the room. And there's an irony to that, but there's also um, something I think I heard Howard Chaikin say once that a producer hired him out of comic books to be a to be a TV writer, and he said, "Why me?" And the producer said something like, "Because you guys got to come up with a new story every week and a half." It's like the average TV writer writes one script a season and then sits and sits in the writers' room the rest of the time pitching ideas. It's like you're writing a TV script every week and a half, two weeks. You guys have to 
pound that stuff out and become story machines. And I have to say, I feel like having a monthly comic the last couple of years made me a much better, faster writer than I had been previously. Yeah, I guess the thing that we haven't talked about in terms of this stuff is like the the the, the prejudice, the acidity goes both ways, right? Oh yeah, um, uh, because. Um, you know, there is a, um, you know, I, I mean, I, my day job is I write movies and, and TV shows, you know, uh, mostly big action movies, uh, written, written for J.J. Abrams and Ridley Scott and Justin Lin and uh, John Woo. And you would think that when I walk up to an editor or a publisher and I'm saying, well, this is my day job, they'd be like, oh, wow, you know how to tell a story. You have been paid uh, money to 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 write, uh, you know, big action movies for 15 years. That w that will apply nicely to what to what we're doing. But um, there is immediately a wall up. You know, I mean, I, I can I can they're talking to me just fine and I can see them take three steps back. You know what I'm saying? There is a, 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 a uh, I mean, I, it's almost like I'm toxic. And, you know, I don't know if it's, um, I mean, let, 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 let's let's be honest. We are in an age uh, of asshole screenwriters taking their failed scripts and, and haphazardly trying to, uh, to uh, turn them into graphic novels um, uh, so they can get them optioned. And so that is part of it. Uh, uh, you know, but part of it is that there is just this territorial thing happening. And, and, and Avalone, you started to sort of talk about it before. Um, uh, you know, um, the, the, the head of, of Marvel film, it, you know, uh, likes to knock heads with the head of, uh, of, of Marvel comics. Uh, they don't like to cross streams. They don't like to, uh, you know, they, they want their own credit. Uh, there's no synergy there and there should be more of a synergy yeah. in this, you know, in this business. And there is not. Yeah. Literally the fact that the profits of Marvel comics and the exposure of comic books in general to the movie going com public suffered enormously because Kevin Fe Feige and Ike Perlmutter hate each other. That's it. No. More no. people could have been exposed to comic books, more comic book fans could have loved the movie, but nope. We those two guys those two guys personally hate each other. So that that handicaps the whole industry. And it's it's ridiculous, but you know, feuds like that have been part of our very you know film and television a very small world comic books easily fits in a room you know like you can fit out fit all the major players in a relatively small room um something like barbara left off in the last part of the thing is like the future really is in uh independent comic publishing for a wide variety of reasons not only uh we are advantageous where we have the digital distribution, both there's print on demand, there's other options to get the, the, the material out there, but it is on, you know, the education and, and getting like, because I remember like um, when you first did a comic book in the old days or even today, it's like you put this thing out or you have this thing out. Like I always tell this, you know, famous story. I like, I've known Stan Sakai since 19, um, 1984. And we met because we were at a comic convention and they put the funny animal guys next to the restroom. They put a couple tables next to the restroom. <laughs> Nobody wants to see the funny animal guys. Uh, here we are, you know, Stan Sakai still working up there working. But our process of discovering how to, you know, even uh, with Peter Lair's idea to put out a press release um, that the Ninja Turtles was coming in 1984. And I'm like, who's going to give a rat's about this? Um, and we ended up getting picked up by the AP service, and we had these little articles on the local newspaper reporter did on the arrival of the Teenage Mutant Turtles, and it went, and we're talking 100 years ago, obviously, but it went all over the country. 
So it is like the education process, as uh, we described, is like you, you know, you have to be able to do panels, which took me a long time to figure out how to do those. So how to give an interview, how to get your idea across, how to self-market yourself. So many people are so much better at social media and things like that of getting your, your information out there. Um, it's 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 it is an education and an arrival to you know pursue it that um, um, I think only independent creators can do. I really do think that's going to be the future, the growth of the business. As long as we can hold on to the the mainstream business, like I said earlier, the comic, we can keep the comic book stores in business to help support the independent market as one aspect of all the things we need to do to market a single line. Well, and I, I always, I always try to encourage creators to interact with retailers as much as they possibly can, because that's the front line. And if that guy is Jack Black from High Fidelity saying, no, man, this is the cool shit. Don't listen to that bullshit. You're picking up that? You're picking up an X-Men annual? Screw you, man. That's garbage. Banjax is the shit, man. That's, that, is the whole, that is the whole world. That is literally that we all sort of live and die on that one guy in the comic book saying, yeah, sure, you could, you could buy that. But you know what the cool kids are reading? The cool kids are reading Kinsey, uh, and that's awesome. And uh, it helps so much. I mean, it's it, the irony is if you were the most outgoing member of your high school class, you probably didn't, you probably weren't someone who locked themselves away and drew cartoons in their basement. Like it's, they're, they're not, they're not always mutually exclusive talent. And I know that, you know, I'm lucky enough to be a loudmouth and an extrovert. So that part of this comes relatively easily to me. But even still, like, I don't know that I would have had Peter Laird's balls to write a press release saying, my independent comic is coming. Everybody write a news article about it. But it's that kind of thing that makes, you know, that kind of high wire act makes all the difference in the world, you know, and, and the ability to, you know, I always tell people, it's like, even if you're an introvert, like it, the, everyone else in Artist Alley is also an introvert and they'll be very nice to you if you talk to them. You know, you know, if you're gentle and kind, you know. So the great part of like every single one of us um, here today talking um, on this podcast is such a wonderful opportunity in that um, there are still people that uh, are very introverted that um, are also sheltered away because of their own personal safety or family safety and the virus and everything. But they're watching a show like this, which is why it's so important, why I love to do be involved in and incredibly grateful to join you guys today is like is like if we can educate them even the littlest bit of how to you know approach and and don't give up on that dream and don't be beaten down by it but they now have a bit of time where they'll watch something like this and and we can get our message across and, and help uh, others you know find that dream as well because that's that's really the, the thing i remember like um first time i met jack kirby i said i want to be a, a cartoonist like you and draw comics every day and and 1985, Peter and I started drawing comics every day, and I'm 58 years old, and I'm still drawing comics every day. It's like, um, that's a childhood dream come true. Um, so if we can help anybody find that, that's yep. that's, that's the shit. I, before, I even, before I even got into comics, I wrote an essay called Success or the Call Bluff. And when you're a teenager, you want to be in movies, show business, whatever, you, you 
pretty common for the, the teenager who wants to be in show business to say, I'll do anything, man. I'll push a broom on a soundstage. Just, I just want to be in movies. I just want to be in comic books. I just want to be in theater. And, you know, 40 years later, maybe you're not a millionaire and maybe you don't uh, live in a big house. But for the past 30 years, I wake up every morning and I'm making something. I'm making a movie. I'm making a comic book. Uh, is it always well-paying? Is it always uh, something a zillion people are going to see? Absolutely not. But you have to sort of frame success as this is what I wanted. This is this is this is the thing that I wanted, and nothing against putting up drywall, but I'm not putting up drywall. I am doing this thing, and you know, you talk to people you went to high school with sometimes, and when you're feeling like, yeah, you know, I didn't become rich, I didn't become famous, I didn't become whatever, but they're like, yeah, but you left and did the thing you said you were going to do when you were 17, and that's like one in a million people that actually do that. Well, you know, it's funny because it's like, is even like. Barbara's got a full-time job. Leland's got a full... Everybody's got a job. We're still doing this on the side. Because I've had people say to me, like, if you didn't have the turtles, what would you be doing? I said, if I was a barista somewhere and drawing comic books on the side, I would still be working in comic books in some fashion. Yeah. So we're all we're all here for the same reason. It doesn't... And that is... It's one of those um, comments, you know, somebody who will come up for a portfolio review or after you just miss how do you break into the business and you try to give them the utmost confidence and, and positivity and have them walk away and it's just sort of like look uh, rent work life family all these things that you have to juggle just to get your every day which are critical um even if you can only set aside 30 minutes a day to pursue your career whether it's writing something or not, if you're a musician uh, musician or you know dance or whatever uh, sports um try to make that time because it's just that much time that's going to get you further because you know, have people who go like, "Oh, I haven't drawn in months," and it's like, "Well, the thing is, you need to draw every day. And you have to find that time to draw every day. And it really, that's the only way you're going to get better. It's, it's possible at times, and you think, uh, how am I ever going to do this?' But just, just try." And I, I yeah, agree with Kevin. And oh, go ahead, Ryland, please. No, no, no. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was, just gonna, I was just going to echo what Kevin was saying in that I, and I, what I feel is so helpful about meeting fans, sadly, which we can't do right now, but uh, in doing panels uh, and doing uh, video casts like this one, what I feel like is so valuable is being able to talk directly with aspiring creators and just help them to understand that, that it's not a, a badge of, of shame to have to uh, complement your comic book creating work with another financial means to pay your rent or you know, take care of your family, that uh, as long as you have, you are making time to be creative and you are making that that uh, priority in your life, then that's all that's important. Uh, it's, it's not a, a sign of failure in any way, shape or form not to be doing this full time. There may come a time later on when you might have that opportunity, but I feel like it's so vital for them to understand because especially with, and I think social media uh, sometimes does, doesn't do justice to, justice to this idea, but uh, having creators understand that there is so much that everyone has gone through to get where they are today and that it doesn't just come uh, to the you know idea that, you know, one day I, I signed up and I was a comic book creator making millions of dollars every day. And this is, this is how I make my salary and everything's great. You know, there's, there's a long varied past for absolutely everyone getting to that point and whatever your journey is, uh, it's really very much about are you being creatively fulfilled? Are you having the opportunity to tell the stories that, that you want to tell? I, 
I always say that living any kind of extraordinary life is a risk. And if you read the autobiography of anyone who's ever lived any kind of extraordinary life, you're going to find the chapter where they're hiding from the landlord. It's in there. It's the, 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 the chapter where they're ducking the landlord, the chapter where the car doesn't work and you have to hitchhike to a thing, the chapter where the first screenwriting job I ever got, and this was with my mutual old friend with Kevin, Andy Sedaris, I didn't actually own a car. And the meeting was at the top of one of the Hollywood Hills in Bel Air, a mile vertical, you know, 90 degree angle up in the hills. And I took, a, for some reason, no one could give me a ride that day. And I took a bus to the base of this hill in Bel Air, took off my shirt and jacket and tie, stuffed them in my briefcase, walked up the hill with every gardener laughing at me and got to the house, toweled myself off, put on a shirt and tie, sat down and got a screenwriting job. And an hour later, the producer had uh, lent me a car, written me a check to cover my expenses. How much was the check? It was only two hundred bucks. Exactly. But, you know, this, this was Andy Sedaris, and he his, his produ he was the director, and his wife was the producing partner. And when I he, he said, "Oh, so come back Monday," he was from Louisiana. He's like, "Come back Monday morning, we'll get started." And I was like, uh, "Can we meet in your office on Sunset Boulevard? Because I can't do this every day." <laughs> and he was like, "Well, uh, my daughter's not driving the Mazda. Let me give I'll just give you the Mazda, and uh, let me write you a check for two hundred bucks. Don't tell Arlene I give you any money, Jesus." And uh, I was driving down Sunset Boulevard an hour later going, what the hell just happened to me? Like, you know, now, I ha now I have a car and a job. And an hour ago, I was walking up a hill shirtless in 95-degree weather without a job. And you, yeah, there's, no, there's no accounting for that. You know, I'd love to hear but um, I would guess that Leland's company got two or 300 hours worth of stories and experiences he's had in the Hollywood <laughs> Well, well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm sitting here listening to this, and 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 I'm I'm thinking about how it's changed. Because here's the thing: is I, you know, I, I moved out to LA uh, to to be a filmmaker, to to be a screenwriter, um, and uh, you know, I was um, I was going to the American Film Institute Conservatory uh, during the day, and I was um, uh, subtitling uh, at night uh, to pay the bills. I was doing um, I've done that. Uh, English uh, <laughs> English subtitles for DVD releases. So so to this day. If you pull out a MacGyver DVD or a Fresh Prince of Bel Air DVD or a Benson uh, DVD, what, what else did I do? Uh, Golden Girls. Um, you can see the English subtitles that uh, that, that I uh, that I created. Um, you know, and, and and so there was that dynamic. Uh, so, but then about halfway through AFI, uh, Luke Besson, uh, you know, threw a bunch of money at me to, to, to write a big action movie. And, um, I have been a working screenwriter ever since, but, but, but here's the thing is, um, so my, my dream came true, right? Um, I was, uh, you know, I, I, I haven't had to do anything but, but write since then. Um, and that was, you know, 15 plus years ago now. Um, but for most of those 15 years, I was completely miserable, you know? Um, so, so I, it's almost the worst thing that can happen to you is like your dream comes true, but what's next? And then you, re you realize it's like, it's not so dreamy. Right. Right. And, um, it, and it doesn't, it doesn't answer all the questions. Yeah. It, it, yeah. And then back to Barbara's point. So, so, I mean, really what we're talking about here is kind of soul food. Right. And so it was like when, when I was subtitling and going to school, I had to, I had to write movies like at 2 a.m. or during that hour between school and, and work in order to stay sane. 
You know what I'm saying? Kevin, you made this point where it's like, it's just, it's, it's gotta be something that, you know, it's, you just gotta do it, you know, whether it's an hour here or a half hour there or whatever. It's like, um, I remember meeting Lawrence Kasdan when I was at the university of Michigan, he's, he's, he was one of our big alums and, and I walked up, up to him and I'm like, you know, Hey, what's the one piece of advice you have for an aspiring writer? He said one word to me, right. That was it. And he walked away and I got it. You just got to write, you know, you're never going to become a writer. If you don't write, you're never going to become an artist. If you don't draw every day. And so, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about soul food. And so here I am. And I, I have for 12 years because, you know, I, I, it was something like, I don't know, at that point, 11 years, 10 years, um, been a working screenwriter, but I was miserable and I needed soul food. I needed another way to express myself. The problem with the, the, the film business was at that point, um, and it's still kind of like this where, you know, Hollywood makes kind of like five different kinds of movies and that's it. You know, what Hollywood does, you can fit on a postage stamp these days. Right. Um, and they, um, and they, you know, they, they want, they want one of those five movies. They want it executed the same way every time. And I got really good at executing those movies. I can do it in my sleep. I mean, they, they, they bought my house. Right. But I was fucking miserable. You know, I was just, I, I, I came up during the Sundance movement. Pulp Fiction made me want to make movies. And I moved out here to go to the snooty American Film Institute Conservatory. And I was going to make Pulp Fiction. The problem is that by the time I got out here, the entire independent film business had, had evaporated. You know, it kind of moved on to television and mutated and, 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 and did some weird things. But nobody was making those movies anymore. And so, and so here I am. And, uh, you know, I, I, got a, I got a song in my heart. And, you know, people are telling me I have to, I have to do this. And so, you know, I, I've, I've, I get paid to write, you know, big action movies and uh and um i, I don't want to be snooty i mean I, I i love big action movies don't don't get me wrong um but you know a lot of the work i've been paid for has been rewrite work your name doesn't end up on it and I, my rule is that my name's not on it i don't talk about it um but you know the truth be told is i've polished a lot of turds in my day you know i've made a lot of shitty movies uh slightly less shitty i've made some good movies like a little bit better um and um but you know that's not that was not the dream you know the dream was come out you know uh uh get your you know get your dream project made what, what was my pulp fiction let me let me get it made let me win awards at sundance let me do this let me do that and like you know i i think that that's a big thing is kind of keeping that in perspective and 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 you know a dream is good but it's not always going to match the reality and so long-winded way of saying that I moved into comics partially because comics were my first love. I always wanted to do comics, but it was like there were stories that I wanted to tell that I could not tell in Hollywood. You know, um, I only get paid to write big movies and Hollywood makes about five of those big movies every year. And so a lot of the shit I write doesn't end up getting made. And, and so I had all these ideas that I knew that a reader would like, a viewer would like, whatever. And uh, they were never going to see the light of day. And I knew that if I died and I had all these stories still in me, that that was going to be a problem. Right. And so I had to find a new way. Um, and so I started publishing fiction and eventually into comics. And those stories, you know, those stories are, are coming out of me and readers are liking them and they're, they're getting published. And, and, and the irony of it all is I published my first comic book aberrant. And then um, and then uh, two, two weeks before the uh, the second issue hits newsstands, it's optioned for television by Tony Kranz, who did 24. And it's now being you know turned into a TV series. That's the weird irony in it. Uh, something that I could never sell as a movie or TV show before, but it gets yeah. turned into a comic and it, 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 and then it moves. And so, um, you know, and, and that was the thing is when I got into comics, I mean, I, um, I made a promise to myself that I was never going to tell a straightforward Hollywood story that I was just gonna, <laughs> I was just gonna, I was just gonna have fun, you know, and, and that was what I did. And, and if you read the first 10 issues of Aberrant, you know, they're, 
there are ups and downs and stuff like that. But man, I mean, I just, I, I just went for broke. I swung for the fences and, and sometimes I cleared the fence. Sometimes I didn't, but I mean, it was, you know, I'm telling the story out of order, uh, playing with time, playing with structure, unreliable narrators, um, uh, experimental elements all around. I mean, there's, you know, there's, um, you know, uh, an entire issue that's just a, a, a you know seen through the eyes of somebody having a drug trip. The uh, uh, the second issue of Banjax is through the point of view of somebody who hasn't slept in like four days and is starting to go mad. Um, uh, there's an episode of Aberrant where um, a man is uh, a character is dying on an operating table. He's a big fan of the game show Jeopardy, and so while he's dying, he imagines himself in an episode of Jeopardy, and all of the categories pertain to like big milestones in his life and it, it turns into kind of a this is your life episode like frames through jeopardy and so it's it, it's batshit crazy right uh but a lot of the times it works and i would never in a million years be able to do this in in in, in film but i'm doing it now in comics and i am happier than i've ever been you know i don't think i could have done 12 more years in in in, in movies kind of with, with handcuffs on and so yeah well, you know, like, what's fantastic is um and i you know uh what you described is what we've been talking about almost the entire this entire podcast is it's independent spirit, independent spirit, independent spirit. I mean, you know, the route I was going to make, um, like how I met David, it's like David basically gave up on his other career so he could hang around in bars at comic conventions, and that's how we met. <laughs> oh, actually, it's funny we actually met twice in hotel bars, and uh, that's what we found and bonded and talked about things we love, things we had, especially the, I wanted to tell the Andy Sedaris story because we bonded completely over Andy Sedaris because I told him the one about uh, the first time I met James Gunn was uh, he'd written Tox, Toxic Avenger, no, Tromeo and Julia for uh, yep. nice. Uh, he wrote this great article yeah. and I learned about filmmaking I learned from, from you know, um, Lloyd Kaufman. Um, but it is, it's all about the, you know, everything that you've experienced in, in your career, Leland and David and, and all of, you know, just every single one of us and all that we've brought to it is this independent spirit is like, you have to get through this stuff and you have to use life. Everything you're dreaming about, everything you want to tell the story, you can't do it in your day job, do it in your, in your night job. And that's what makes an idea. I mean, that was the evolution of drawing blood. It was like, I had ideas, David had ideas, and that's how we bonded as, um, Co-creators, as those ideas came together um, perfectly, and I think it's it's, a, it's just a, a meant to be kind of thing. But it was all those things that we wanted to tell without an editor telling you what you could do, what you couldn't do, which, whatever. And um, thanks to Kickstarter, we were able to tell a story. And that's really, I mean, you know, to to, to move towards the ending on a on a positive note. The the great thing about comics compared to film, and it's obvious. You know, I I know artists hate it when screenwriters who don't know anything about how hard it is to draw a thing come to comics and say, "Oh, it's great. There's no budget. I can draw. I can have three million starships." It's like, he's he's back, buddy. Someone's got to draw the three million starships, and that's not as easy as drawing two people sitting at a table. But uh, but there is the ability to swing for the fences, and a a budget for a comic book. If you're writing and drawing it yourself, the budget is zero. Uh, if you're hiring people, the budget is still, it's not $100,000. It's not $200,000, it's not a million dollars that it would cost you. So your your risk is low. And when the risk is low, you can be brave. And even in film, it, 
I would rather see brave and failed than conventional and successful. I'd rather see the big swing and go, oh, they really tried something here. It didn't work. But I was interested because they tried something. It's probably why Cronenberg is one of my favorite directors because he's never, he doesn't do the safe, he never, even some of his unsafe choices, you're like, oh man, you didn't have to make it this hard on yourself. But uh, that's always more thrilling to watch. It's always thrilling to be in the hands of an artist or a writer who isn't holding back and who you know isn't holding back and who you don't know where they're going to take you and you can't predict what it's going to take. And that's so much easier to do in comics. And it's so much easier to put forward those ideas in comics. I made a deal this week. There's a dream project I've had for 30 years and I'm finally doing an eight page version of it this week because it uh, got accepted into an anthology. I found an artist that wanted to do it. I made a deal with her for uh, how we're going to split the profits of it and all that kind of thing. And it's literally something I've wanted to do forever. And I had thought of it as a movie in the past. It's perfect as a comic book. It's going to make an amazing comic book. Um, but it's absolutely one of my lifelong dream projects. And I can do it in comics with shockingly little effort compared to convincing a, mov a, a movie studio to spend $200 million on a movie about fairy tales set during World War II. Like, that's a crazy expensive high concept, but uh, me and the artist worked out a deal. It's going to be just fine. Um, and that's the, you know, and the one thing I want to tag on, uh, Ryland and I often are uh, evangelists for uh, Kickstarter and crowdfunding and all that. But I'll say one thing about it that I think is underappreciated. And I think Barbara and Kevin will both appreciate this too, that, if you're just a writer, just an artist, just a cartoonist, any of those things, it really is great to know what printing costs. It's really great to know what it costs to hire a letterer. It's great to know what mailing shit costs. What, what does it cost to mail a floppy? Holy shit, $5? That's insane. Uh, but, it's, but once you know that, you have an understanding. It's partially why I have that chaotic IMDb page is to me, the more you understand the thing, the more you can be good at it, the more you can bring to it. If you know, well, okay, this many, that much money is this many units and this many floppies and it translates into this many pages of a, of a graphic novel and all that kind of thing. Uh, it's invaluable to know that stuff. And I'm not saying you can't be a comic book creator without knowing what it costs to print a 64 page graphic novel but man it doesn't hurt and to know that it's got to be 64 pages it can't really be it can't be 65 it can't be 66 it's actually got to be divided by eight for all sorts of reasons like or you can throw a bunch of back matter in whatever but like it's really good to know those things and uh i am always on the side of knowing things knowing is half the battle <laughs> yep all right, so on that note, why don't we go ahead and uh, start to wrap it up here. Um, uh, we'll go, uh, you know, around and, uh, you know, uh, remind us who you are and let us know where we can find you and uh, where we can find your your business, your wares, all that noise. Uh, Barbara, why don't you go ahead and uh, kick, it, kick it off? Sure thing. So you can find all of Fanbase Press's work at fanbasepress.com. We're on all of the social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, uh, Apple Podcasts, everything except MySpace. It's a hole in your game. 
Yeah. <laughs> got to get that friends that Friendster page. Up. I miss Tom so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I just want to go not as much as he misses you. I want to go back to one thing. Uh, uh, Avalonia, I think a hole in your game is I think you need to upgrade your Hulu and get rid of those commercials, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Kevin, where, uh, Kevin, where can we find you? Uh, classmates.com, MySpace. Um, <laughs> LinkedIn. Don't forget your LinkedIn page, Kevin. Yes. Got to yeah. up, update your resume on LinkedIn, man. Oh, that's that's some of, my, some of the jokes my wife hates the most because I tell people I've met her on uh, – um, Farmersonly.com and stuff like that. <laughs> nice. No, but KevinEastmanStudios.com <laughs> is is the main fan page that I use for uh, just anything we're doing, and and we we try to put as much fun and mostly you know most of the content's free anyway. Just what we're doing, and anytime we think it's free or something weird or uh, you know doing something, you can find us there. But um, um, yeah. Otherwise, you know. Uh, um, you know, look at the IDW website. But yeah, everything, go to KevinFordStudios.com and you can find out about anything else. <laughs> Abalone, where can we find you? And and by the way, at KevinEastmanStudios.com, if you click that Drawing Blood link, there's all sorts of Drawing Blood merch and the comics uh, Kevin and I co-created. There are T-shirts even. It's crazy. And uh, most of my stuff is on, all of my stuff is on uh, DavidAvaloneFreelance.com. Uh, and I do this here podcast with Ryland. And I am uh, Ryland Grant. I am at Ryland Grant, R-Y-L-E-N-D-G-R-A-N-T on all social media. I spell it because it's uh, not a real name. My parents just kind of made it up and it's weird. And so nobody knows how to spell it. Um, yeah, my, uh, 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 the, the freshly Ringo award, uh, nominated, uh, Banjax and the Ringo award winning, uh, as of last year, Aberrant are available at fine comic shops everywhere and on Comixology and Amazon and everywhere you, uh, get your, uh, your, your comic books and my, my latest book, The Jump, uh, I just kickstarted it. Uh, you can find that at the jump, all one word, uh, dot backerkit.com. Plenty of copies left and, um, a lot of uh, really rare kind of Banjax and uh, Aberrant uh, variants, con variants that you wouldn't be able to get anywhere else. Um, if you are uh, watching us on uh, one of the three YouTube channels we're on, uh, uh, smash that like button, uh, hit subscribe all the way around. Um, if you're listening to us on uh, um, uh, iTunes or Spotify or another kind of dealer of ear crack, uh, yeah, subscribe, uh, give us a five-star rating, tell your friends, grab your friend's phone, uh, uh, subscribe them to us, all that good noise. <laughs> uh, we will be back next week uh, with another uh, uh, fine and enlightening episode. Uh, Kevin and Barbara, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. Really thank great, you guys. So Thanks much. so much. We appreciate it. Take it, easy. Take it easy, guys. See you next week. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.